the human experience. How is it connected to non-human intelligence? Moreover, how can we, living in a world of postmodernism, synthesize our focus on the bigger picture, bringing together the nuts and bolts left brain with the more consciousness and intuitively focused right-brained aspects of this broad and mysterious phenomenon. Said another way, can we bridge the mechanistic and the experiential when it comes to the ET and UFO phenomenon? To broach this big question, I turned to UFO researcher and experiencer Mike Cleland to help us parse this all out. Though we both agree that the field of ufology is in part a scientific study of phenomena, there is a subjective and personal aspect that cannot and should not be ignored. Let's tune in to this provocative and thoughtful discussion. Well, Mike, at this point, you and I have had quite a few phone conversations since we initially met back in 2016 in Maine for an Experiencer conference. And in our last chat, just a few days ago, we were both musing about the disparity in dialogue or position when it comes to two very distinct sides within the field of UFO research. Now, to start, this term that we have, that being UFO, which has been used to describe an area of interest that is so broad, so multifaceted, and yet, bless our hearts, us humans love to simplify things, including using labels like UFO, when there's so much more to this phenomenon than mere unidentified flying objects, or these days we say UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. So today, I thought we'd have a dialogue about the two vastly different sides to this broad phenomenon when it comes to where importance is placed. We're talking about the mechanistic, material, technological aspect of the ET and UFO phenomenon, including the cover-ups, the leaks, the secret programs, etc., the who knows what and for how long, as compared to the experiential part of this big mystery. This involves us, perhaps many of us, the contact with non-human intelligence, abduction scenarios, and even the prospect of ET human hybrids walking amongst us. And yes, the consciousness aspect of which many agree play a central part in this big mystery. So now that we've set the stage for this great discussion we're going to have, let me finally and formally welcome you to Higher Journeys for the very first time, Mike Cleland. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Glad you're here. Now, for the record, to the audience, uh, both Mike and I, as researchers, have been clear uh, that our entry point into this work is based on the experiencer aspect. I mean, I've said many times, the more uh, mechanistic aspects to this field have never fully held my interest. And when I started to look at the level of interaction that we as humans may be having with non-human beings, things started to get very interesting for me, and they have remained so to this day. Now, Michael, I just realized I called you Michael. Do you go by Michael? Or <laughs> I used to go by Mike. Okay. Um, if, the, if my mom was mad at me, <laughs> she would call me Mike. Well, I'm not mad at you, but I said Michael for the record. I'm well, going to say Mike. That's okay. Forgive me, Mike. <laughs> Listen, I know that you, as an experiencer yourself, feel the same way as I in terms of uh, this entry point. You've done some stellar research into this aspect based on your own sojourns into this mystery. So before we get into the crux of the discussion, I would love for you to give us a little thumbnail as to your specific entry point and when this all began for you. What brought you into this? Um, so if folks don't know who I am, there's like one key factor here, then it's the owl. Mm. So I, I recognize fully that it, I have, I am now known as the owl guy. 
<laughs> and I have no problem with that. And it's, it's true. I have done a, a, a wealth of research into owls and their connections to both UFO contact and, uh, and synchronicities. And then a whole host of other things, including shamanism and death and meditation and, uh, uh, a few other like sort of more, well, but I let's say I use the term of the highly charged human experience. Mm -hmm. So the, the, those kind of events in people's lives now. Um, so turn the clock back to 2006, which is 13 years ago. I was 44 at the time. And I was, I was living out West and I had a lifetime of these kind of odd little events that I somehow managed to ignore and deny and not and not confront. I had seen close-up UFO, well, one very close-up UFO, and then another odd light in the sky. I had a missing time experience, and then there was even a point when I woke up in the middle of the night and looked out my window, and there was a bright light shining in, and and I looked out, and just outside the window, pretty darn close to the house, were five spindly gray aliens in little tight kind of uniforms and I I without without any emotion at all I sort of heard a voice in my head that says oh yes they're here now is the time to put your head on the pillow and shut down and that's exactly what I did so um, it was a scary thing to see but I didn't react like I was frightened mm -hmm. now so I had all those memories I dismissed them all I denied them all I figured out a way to to not take them seriously in 2006 I had a it really started happening fast and furious. And this was at a point when I was, like I knew, I recognized that I was avoiding the subject. I was actually reading UFO books somewhat compulsively at that time, but I was not factoring in my own experience. I wasn't mm -hmm. gonna go there. And that changed in 2006 when I went camping and um, with a stranger, it was kind of a remarkable thing, just someone I had never, which is kind of something you could do in a town like I lived in. It was a town out west, a small little town. It had a real strong camping culture and that's just what people did you know so instead of you know going to the movie or something like that you would go camping so uh and and her name was Kristen, this friend who i really didn't know and we went out for one night and the weather was beautiful and we didn't take a shelter we were going to sleep out under the stars i was living right near yellowstone and grand teton national park i was on the idaho side of the of the range there um and the sun was setting and we were in this field of wildflowers and it was really lovely. And I was on a big flat rock making dinner and an owl flew over us. And then another owl and then a third owl. And we laid down on our sleeping bags and these owls swooped above us, just right above, blotted out the stars for just a second. They're very quiet in flight, so there's nothing to hear. And it was really magical. Hmm. And then a few days later, I. We just went out for one night. We went back, and the next, a few days later, I said, hey, let's go out one another time. Let's go out camping again. This time, the weather was a little colder, and, we, and it was a little chillier, and I said, let's walk up to the top of that hill. Well, this time, we had a tent with us. Let's walk up to the top of that hill and get warm, because it, it could be, you know, we'd be, we need to just generate. We were just kind of sitting still. It was kind of chilly. So there was this little hill that was, we were kind of in the high country there, and so we, we'd watch the sunset from the top of this hill. So we got to the top of this hill, and an owl lands on a branch, an owl flies above us, and an owl lands at our feet. And four days earlier, these owls, I'm convinced they were the same three owls. Mm -hmm. Four days earlier, 
they kind of kept their distance. Not this time. They were right next to us. They were at our feet in front of us. And it was really remarkable. To have it happen once was pretty cool. To have it, ha- to have it happen twice within four days with the same person was absolutely mystical. Sure. And in that moment, in that moment, I had a voice in my head. And, and it's funny now. This is, I've, been, I've told this story hundreds of times. And I just recently went back and looked at some of my original notes. But this is what I used to say. I used to say, in the moment, I heard a voice in my head, could have been my own voice, that said, this has something to do with the UFOs. I was looking at real owls, and I heard a voice that says, this has something to do with the UFOs. I went back and looked at my original notes just a few weeks ago. And what I actually said, what I actually wrote down at the time was, this has something, I was looking at a real owl. The voice in my head said, this has something to do with the UFOs. You are an abductee. Wow. Very direct. Which is a little different. And I, it's funny that I managed to kind of like over the years just kind of erase that from my little storytelling. But that was there. So I had all these events in my life. I started looking into them. So it wasn't, you know, seeing aliens in the backyard that that inspired me to look into these events. It was these owls that inspired me. So consequently, one of the questions I ask every single person I interact with who has some sort of UFO experience or a UFO researcher, I'll say, have you ever had any odd experiences with owls? Mm-hmm. And it's not 100%, but it's enough that there is a very clear pattern. And I've collected and archived these stories and those stories have turned into two big books. And the third big book is more about my own journey. There's certainly owls in that, but it's not the focus mm-hmm. as it is with the other two books. Thank you for that very succinct. And I'm telling you, audience, this draws you in immediately. This whole Now, I was debating, uh, Mike, when we decided to do this interview, do we want to focus on, obviously, your stellar research into the, the owl connection and the UFO experience or this? And I think that... If I'm trying to think of a segue, how we can maybe go from uh, from your own personal journey into the the bigger picture, of what we're going to talk about here. So you ask, you have asked the people that uh, that you've come in contact with. I know you've documented many, many cases of experiencers and people that have had some form of UFO contact, whether owls have been central or at least a part of the experience. And you're saying that not all, but significantly enough to pique your interest even more. Uh, and show that there may there's a connection here. Is that what you're saying? That yes, it's not okay. central. Certainly, it's certainly not central to the mystery. It's mm-hmm. on the outs. It's an outlying little thing. I call it a fractal at the edge. Right, you're dealing with this little pinpoint fractal at the way on the outside edge. I didn't discover this. You know, Whitley Strieber had written about it, and other people had certainly written about it beforehand. And but you would get a big fat UFO book, and in there there would be a paragraph on owls. Or a few sentences. Mm-hmm. So it was out there. It was not at the center of anyone's research until... Right. Until, until you came along. <laughs> until I came along. Yeah, until I came along and, and kind of went kind of wiggy on it and kind of got completely obsessed. Right. And it was actually, honestly, it was really fun. You know, like it was really interesting right. to, to pick this one topic and then pull on those threads. Yeah. Well, again, you've just done amazing work. And I know there's still lots to do because the mystery is still uh, somewhat ubiquitous. How can we segue this? Now, yeah, I'm going to bring in some names. I'm going to name names today. Why not? And it's all in a positive way. We're going to talk about, for starters, a, a couple of mutual colleagues, including Rich Dolan, who we both know quite well. I want to bring him in at this point, Mike, because 
we're talking about, again, two very distinct and yet uh, disparate areas of research in this field we broadly call ufology. Now, you take Richard Dolan, who everyone knows, and he's, again, stellar, stellar researcher, historian by uh, profession. Uh, he is the pragmatic, <laughs> the left brain, the th- most thorough, I would say, one of the most thorough researchers on the more mechanistic aspects of this broad phenomenon. And yet we we were talking about this offline. Richard is also very open to the experiential, although that's not his bailiwick, uh, but he is open to it. Have you had conversations? I know you've worked with him quite closely over the years. Oh, yeah. He Have you had conversations? The, he edited the hmm. first book. Okay. And didn't and he so, write the forward to one of them as well? The first one. Oh, yeah. What did he have to say coming from the, the aspect that he uh, is known for? In terms well, of he addresses you're... this in the foreword. Like in the foreword of the book, he basically says, you know, I think I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase the first line of the of the. I could actually read it here or something, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Like no thinking person will read this book without a fundamental change in his insights into reality. And that mm. was talking about my first book, which is a big fat. It's almost 400 pages. A big fat book on on vowels uh, and synchronicities and UFOs. And my own story is in there too. So you know. I've had lots of conversations with him because I, you know, my rich knew me. I'm much calmer now. Rich knew me at a point when I was really struggling with this stuff mm-hmm. and it, it was challenging and rich and I are almost exactly the same age. And so, you know, we, we kind of, you know, I feel like a somewhat just on a personal level, like he's kind of a, he's kind of a equal, well, whatever what would you call it, a peer. He's a, a peer. peer. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. So, um, but he, the people have asked me this question before, like, how did Rich Dolan get involved in this weird owl stuff? And what I had done is I did a presentation, stood on a stage and did my first presentation in 2014 at the International UFO Congress. And I have to thank uh, Alejandro Rojas for, you know, giving me the chance to do that. And the talk went very well. And I made a, and I sent Rich um, a link to like a little online password protected thing where he could look at the talk. The video of the talk and he got right back to me and he says like this has to be a book and i was kind of working on the book at the time and he so he's kind of new and i said yeah this you gotta you gotta really make this book happen and he was really drawn in by the talk and so he i want i don't want to be i want to be very careful not to put words into his mouth but he, he certainly recognized that there was this strange mystical consciousness whatever term you want to use mm-hmm. aspect Right. To within the research. And I think he was kind of waiting for a book to come along to publish that would address it in a thoughtful way. And then and then that that turned out to be my book. So he was he kind of said, no, I really want to do this. And I said, you know, this is a big departure for you. And he said, no, this feels like an important book. And that's part of the reason it was so long. I was like, you know, this this what do I, I it feels like it's getting long. What do I leave out? And we had a long conversation. He's like, no one has ever addressed this subject. So you, you sort of need to put it all in there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. You know, look, we're, I don't want this to be a conversation with uh, an expectation of deciding which aspect of this phenomenon, mechanistic or experiential, is more important, uh, Mike. I do want to get into a discussion about why these areas have heretofore been so distinct and, and kept separate. 
Um, and it's clear just by this uh, short story that you told us about your interaction uh, with Richard says that the people that are heavy on this aspect of the research are still, at least some of them, amenable to this more mystical aspect. But there is clearly, a, I don't know, almost silos between the two. Just generally speaking, what are your initial thoughts as to the why on all this? And I think we actually t talked about this offline uh, the other day, having to do with male and female, maybe. Oh, yeah, know. that was, that was that's my <laughs> Just sense. A leading right, question. Right down the line, it is guys and girls. I mean, that's, okay. I mean it's a, that's a ridiculous caricature, but there's a bit of truth there. So I when I gave that talk in 2014 at the International UFO Congress, like I would go to that conference, I'd been there a bunch of times and, and I would had gone to a lot of conferences and, you know, some more, you know, nuts and bolts. The terms two camps, I say love and light and nuts and bolts. And that's, mm. you know, that's a little bit provocative, but that's okay. Um, so like I have short hair and I, like I would dress nice when I went to conferences. I would, you know, like wear nice shoes and put on a blazer and I wouldn't wear a tie or anything like that, but I was, you know, like I made an effort to dress nice. Just it seemed like to the, the subject requires a little bit of respect. So I was able to sort of flit like a little honeybee between all the camps. Mm -hmm. And then I did a talk, and I and so I had the little the little name tag that hangs around your neck, and it said I had my name, and it said speaker, and everyone could look on the on the. Uh, the little flyer that lists all the speakers the schedule and see that I was the guy who was going to talk about owls, UFOs and synchronicity. And I was absolutely ostracized from one half of the conference. That like, blatant, huh? Like, like they wouldn't make eye contact with me. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it was almost at, at that point. And obviously, yes, I'm being a little bit bold is how I tell this now that it's a few years ago. But, um, and I was in, and I, at the same time, I was immediately like the darling of the love and light camp, right? So they were like, "Oh, you're talking about owls? Oh, that's so wonderful! Here, come sit with us and talk with us." Mm. And it was, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of a caricature, and it's obviously not 100% true. But the many more women on the love and light camp, and many more men well, in sure. the in the nuts and bolts camp, mm. which is true of anything, right? I mean, that's like a, you know, that's men go to engineering school and you know women go to they become psychologists and psychiatrists and things like that so in in differing numbers so so i i that was my that was my i was like shocked i did not expect that to be that blatant you mean in terms of the the alienation oh, <laughs> forgive <yes>. the pun <laughs> yes yes exactly it's a perfect it's just a, i was shocked that i would be like wow i'm like really you know, but I made a ton of friends on the other side. So the divide just got like more rigid all of a sudden, right? So I was being sucked into one camp and I was being ignored by by the other camp. So, uh, and you know, what also happened, which I'm happy to say is a few people in the nuts and bolts camp said, I did not know what to make of your talk at all. Like I saw it like with the title of your talk on the schedule. Mm -hmm. And you know, I just, I just, I, was so mystified that I walked in and, and just started, I sat in for a little bit of your talk. And I ended up watching the whole thing and you made some very good points and I really enjoyed it and I thought it was very, very interesting. So, you know, like the, the it's not like a, it's not like you can't, you know, it's not like the, there's a, you can bridge the divide easily. Of course you can, we know that. That's why we're having this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> hmm. 
I, I'm really feeling like this conversation is going to take a clearly a psychological tone. We're really we're looking at the, the psyche of Homo sapiens sapiens and how we are uh, still tend to be bless our hearts so egocentric. Because I, I really think it, it, it can be as simple as that and, and yet complex. And I'm thinking of something else, Mike, in terms of this clear uh, demarcation and in terms of attitude. And, you know, as you described this incident, you said it was at the Congress, at UFO Congress yep. several years ago. And I know that they've got the cornucopia of um, uh, topics within the field of ufology there. Uh, but how clear it was that once folks, certain people, realize what you'd be talking about. They didn't want to talk to you. And then the love and lighters, I like that love and light nuts and bolts. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to steal that one from you. Go ahead. I stole it from someone else. (laughs) But you know, one of the things I'm thinking about, uh, as you know, I did a talk um, last year in Australia where I was trying to make some semblance of a case for contact as a mass phenomenon. Unconscious contact is what I called it. But one of the areas that I wanted to really kind of exploit, to really look shine a light on, were those, this isn't necessarily the same thing, but still the, the, the conservatives, the, even the skeptics of the whole, the whole phenomenon for that matter. But even as I listen to you, I'm wondering, at least in some cases, I mean, look, I say that anyone that is involved more than just a notion in this field, I don't care what aspect, there's some skin in the game that they've got, maybe even their own experience. This is one of the things I brought out in my talk, that even in the this this vehement skepticism may be a form of denial of personal experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. What, I oh, mean, yeah. it, it, I think there's something very interesting about the vehemence of the, you know, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's a scientific study and that's it. You know, it's all about the, mater- the materialistic aspects. Uh, in that vehemence, could there be a bit of denial, almost like your own, in a sense, in the beginning. You didn't want to see it. Talk about that. Absolutely. I mean, that's tough, tough to say. But I mean, one of the things that I ask is, you know, have, you know, a lot of people get into this subject, even the nuts and bolts crowd get into it from a sighting or something like that. And then, uh, and then there's the mystery of the UFO contact. If it's what it seems to be, it has the ability to completely erase its own presence. You know, so Elaborate on that when you say erase its own presence. Well, so uh, I did a little essay some years ago, and uh, there was a there was a researcher. She was the MUFON state director for the state of uh, Utah, and her name was Elaine Douglas. She has since passed, uh, and she was a tough one. She was she was not a love and lighter. I mean, she was a tough cookie, and she would ask people she did you know straight up kind of mufon type investigations mm-hmm. and then part of her little thing was she said you know after the after the mufon paperwork was filled out i'd sit with a person and say just here let's talk for a little bit let's what's the strangest thing that ever happened to you what's gone on in your life and she said you knew right away whether they had ufo contact or not you asked that question what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you and you'll know and so she kind of like realized that these people were telling exactly the stories that people who had UFO contact would tell without the direct memory of having been abducted. So her estimation was that over 50% of the people who see a UFO are actually abductees. Mm-hmm. And I've and I and I thought that was pretty provocative. So I went around and talked to other UFO investigators 
And it's certainly not all of them, but Bud Hopkins, who's since passed, also certainly thought that. Uh, David Jacobs certainly thinks that. Uh, Yvonne gave a very nuanced answer to that question. And and so what you ended up, the, the, the more cautious investigators would say, well, you know, it depends on the UFO sighting. Mm-hmm. And the more unambiguous the UFO sighting, the more likely the person would be. This is all just people's opinion. The more likely they would be to be. Uh, uh, have had direct contact right. experiences. I'd, I'd like to, if I could just interject, uh, Mike, I want to add to that. It, uh, that kind of raised an eyebrow um, of recognition when you mentioned this woman making that um, assessment. I don't know if you're familiar with the work, excellent work of Steve Mera, who's a, a, a UFO and paranormal investigator over in the UK, who recently gave me some stats uh, of which I'm still trying to understand where they were derived from, but having to do with witnessing, the witnessing of a UFO, the witnessing of a craft, over a certain period of time may intimate contact. His numbers come up if you have a sighting that lasts in excess eight minutes or more, uh, a sighting. It could very well have been more than just a sighting when a sighting is not just a sighting. Sure. Um, and th- there were a couple of other numbers associated with that, but that's that's pretty provocative on its own. You know, yeah, and, and I would also sighting. say... Um, anyone who like the people they say if, if you have car trouble, if you're in a car. Oh, sure, car, very common. Absolutely. Yeah, so that they that would put you more in that 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 list, which is you got, I mean you can simply cannot prove this. It would be you would have to have a ton of money to figure out a way to study this scientifically. But this is just you know the opinion of researchers who've put a lot of time and effort into this, and and so yeah, it's a it's a. So back to the folks at the UFO conference, my sense is, like, if you've made it to the UFO conference, something's going on in your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's like that's like going to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and said, oh, I don't have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting here in this circle. Like, you're there for a reason. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, in, t- in terms of proving, I think I-, I think we need to take that word out of our vernacular when it comes to this field. Gen- I don't care what side of it you're on, uh, because proof as we uh, believe it to be, or, you know, proof as we understand it to be, I think is just, it's, you know, we're playing with a different deck of cards here altogether. You know, the, the, the exactly. multifacets of this phenomenon, uh, both from the mechanistic and the experiential is... Well, and uh, I'll, I'll say that, like, for me... Like, this is not, like, I am not an impartial investigator, right? I am completely, I am not objective, right? I'm not objective. This is selfish. I want answers for myself. I had a bunch of owl experiences. I want answers to what the owl thing means. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm getting, more questions are arising than answers, that's for sure. But so I am, I'm entering this completely subjectively. Right, you have and to. So, I think you, well, you, well, you, not if you're not if you're researching, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the health effects of, you know, vitamin C. You know, you don't have to be. You have to be somewhat objective. But so I, I'm not. I'm, so here's a funny story. I uh, a friend of mine called me up. He was angry. He was a little annoyed at me, and I was doing a lot of. He's a great researcher too. I don't want to use his name here because, but he's, <laughs> but he gets quite sort of annoyed at me. And he says, "Mike, your research, your stuff is. You're just driving me crazy. Your your research is not scientific." And without skipping a beat, I said, "What do I care? I'm not a scientist." 
<laughs> there you go. Right. Which is true, right? I mean, you don't have to be. Yeah. You don't have to have a scientific bend to be a journalist. Right. You don't have to have well, a scientific bend to be a to be a good listener. Right? right. That's absolutely true. No, yours is a different brand of investigation. But I'll say this for the record, too. And I'm trying to remember who it was that said this, that had a comment about the way the field of science approaches its own experiments. And I'm going to think of this person. But the person said that science will finally get some answers when they start to put them, when the scientists themselves themselves start to become a part of the experiment. That would be the experiential. So maybe we need to re-examine and reframe the way we look at science or approach certain experiences. Uh, yeah, experiments, yeah, I meant to say. Like... Experiments. You know, by becoming, I mean, look at, let's go back to the work of Einstein and, 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 and others. Newton, who was a mystic, Sir Isaac Newton himself. You know, Einstein, now I know his experiments, you know, some of the more sophisticated ones were, were certainly not predicated on his dream state. But we know that the dreams had a lot to do with how he approached the criteria of what he, uh, the information that he got. I think some of the best scientists understand the experiential is important, but it can't be all one thing or all another. Just like this isn't all love and light and it's not all nuts and bolts. This is what this yeah. conversation is about, bridging the two. Yeah, so, and... and uh... And I'm in my research, like I'm trying to be very formal in the way I present my research, but I'm I'm totally open to presenting the, the you know stuff that's that's pretty far out. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. Okay, so this one woman, um, Jessica, tell, she gets a hold of me and she tells me an owl story. She said she's lying in bed, she looks out the window and there's an owl, and it's on the branch and it's looking down at her and she's looking up at the at the at the owl and this blue beam comes down and hits the owl in the head and then this beam shoots out of the owl's third eye and connects with her third eye this this beam like this laser beam and she's basically downloaded with this mystical knowing of everything in the universe and i was like whoa, whoa wait were you asleep was this a dream she's like no 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 this was not a dream and and she then I went through the questions, and she had a very close-up UFO sighting as a, as a young woman. I think she was in elementary school, so she would have been a girl. But um, And a bunch of psychic premonitions and such. So so I kind of put that on the back shelf. I'm like, wow, that's a powerful story. I don't know what to make of it. That one story, I can't go into it now, her story somehow got intertwined with another set of stories that had so many synchronicities connected to them that I... Hmm. trusted her story because it was connected to this divergent web of synchronicities and that's not science that's me and i say it straight up in the book like i don't hide the fact that i'm making my connections using the power of synchronicity i'm going to bring something up i'm taking somewhat copious notes right now i'm trying not to have the pen my writing be picked up on the microphone but very interesting what you just said, Mike, in terms of how it seemed that the owl was used almost as a catalyst between whatever was coming from, let's just say, out there broadly, through the owl into the third eye of the uh, the witness or the experiencer. So my question becomes, have you looked at, and again, no, none, no answer to whatever extent is going to be simple, but could the owl act as some sort of an interface uh, or catalyst between extra dimensions in our own 3D. There's something absolutely, it's almost as if they're, in, they're, they're translating something maybe 
So well, that's that, the lore. Absolutely. That's the mythology, right? So if, let's turn the clock back a few hundred years and you're like out in the plains of, uh, you know, South Dakota, right? And and you uh, are walking down the path in your moccasins, right? And you have this mystical experience with an owl, right? Well, whatever it might be. So you have a, like a mystical, powerful interaction with an owl. Then you go in, you know, find the teepee at the edge of the village where the shaman lives and you sit with him and say, I had this experience with the owl. The shaman in that context would be well-versed and ask questions like, what's leading, what were you doing in your life? What were you thinking about at the moment? What's changed since you saw the owl? So, so absolutely, like that, they would say the owl is a, you know, is a totem spirit. Mm -hmm. And you have, you have, I'm going to, I'm using sort of like, you know, bad TV mumbo jumbo here, but, (laughs) you know, sort of saying like, you know, you have been imbued with the owl magic, right? So absolutely, yes, the owl can be the intermediary between the worlds. Now that is the, that's the role, right? So in, that's the core myth of the owl. So the owl is a night totem. The owl is a bird that flies at night, which, which is remarkable. Even, you know, even an ancient man would have recognized that it is remarkable the owl can fly through the forest at night. Mm-hmm. Right? This, we live in a world with electric light bulbs. Think of what, just a few hundred years ago, what it must have been before the electric light, what night must have meant. Night was eerie and sinister. All that's changed since we have car headlights and flashlights and street lights and lights in our house. Now, the owl in all the worlds, this is, this is a rough simplification the owl flying into the darkness becomes a metaphor for flying into other realms mm-hmm. now not only does it fly to the other realms it has to come back it has to return and it will return with a message a message from the gods a message from your ancestor a message from the land of the dead and now this has just simply been updated they're the intermediary between us and the ufo occupants Right, They're, the UFO occupants are, are are on the same plane as the dead and the gods and the ancient ancestors. Let's say. So yeah, so that would be that's that's the central thesis of my of hmm. my argument about okay. the owls. Yeah, they're. I had not heard that, happening. but yeah. Yeah, what's yeah. happening is that people are, uh, they're they're straight up in their stories, like without me telling it at all. They're saying, "Well, I was, you know." Here, I'll give you a real quick one. So um, this actually, this is, there's more to this story, but this is, I've heard this story over and over again in many forms. Uh, a woman, her friend of my sister's, uh, her mother died, excuse me, her father had died and she was grieving the loss of her father. And there was a little nature walk in the neighborhood that went through the woods right outside the neighborhood where my sister lives. This woman lives right across the street from my sister. So I've walked these same little nature walks and she was grieving the loss of her father and she every day she would pass this owl she passed this owl and she's grieving and she's she's like basically seeking to move past the grief and then finally she looks at this owl after this has been going out day after day and she says owls shouldn't be out during the day and she looks at this owl and says daddy and in that moment she's completely filled with this, I'm getting chills just saying this. Mm-hmm. In that moment, she's completely filled with a sense of knowing that her father is fine. Mm-hmm. Everything is all right. And the owl flies off, and she never sees it again. And her grieving ended, and when when she 
she told me this story the same day my mother died. Hmm. This woman, this woman across the street from my sister's house. And she said, the way she presented the story was she did not know anything about my owl research. She said, I know there's an afterlife. And I know because of an experience with an owl. Now, so yes, we have this intermediary or this it plays an intermediary role it's a messenger she called the owl a messenger mm-hmm. without any prompting from me and that happened so often that it became the name of the book i'm looking at it right now they, they are the messengers how do we go from the extraordinarily mystical to the extraordinarily mechanical how do we reconcile these two things i'm going to bring it right back you know, we're in an age where we're talking about, I know this seems like it's, a, it's like the anti, antithesis or sacrilege having these two conversations in one, but there's something oh, no, no. here. You know, as you know, we're starting to get what I'm calling this slow drip, drip, drip of mainstream media coverage about um, the revelation that UFOs have been studied within high-level government intelligence circles. You've got two, the STARS Academy or TTSA. You've got the Pen- Pentagon's ATIP, the still-discussed Wilson-leaked documents, et cetera, all this stuff. Um, and there's serious erudite researchers whose work remains centered on this aspect, the mechanistic, not the mystical. But, but there are some, very few, like our mutual friend and colleague. Who am I talking about? Can you guess? Grant Cameron. Of course you are. Of course we are. We're talking about Grant, who, let's just say, has straddled beautifully both sides of the fence in terms of his research. He, as you know, uh, he's been all over this, uh, the Wilson Papers in fact, I was talking to him. We were both over in the UK for the recent conference and sat on uh, curbside. And we're just, he's just telling me so much about this. And he's so passionate about this. But he is equally passionate about the consciousness and experiencer aspect. So perhaps his work in both these areas may help us uh, to get there to synthesize the phenomenon in terms of our interest uh, level a bit more. What do you think? Is Grant making a dent in that regard of bridging these two things? Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 He's totally he's it's funny. I did. I can talk very, very fast. And I did an interview with Grant on his show. That's right. You both talk fast. actually. (laughs) (laughs) And it was funny because it was like right at the beginning. I was like, Grant, we both talk fast. Let's give let's give your listeners two shows in one. Let's do two hours (laughs) with a talk in one hour. And he's like, great, we can do that. And then we we were totally went at it. It was it was really fun. I I don't know. I don't think every show should be like that. But that was fun. Um, Yes. So here, so here's my take on this. So I, for a long time, worked teaching outdoor skills. I would do 30 day trips into the mountains in Alaska and Canada and the Rockies. And, and, and you would have young folks, young people, usually college age. And um, you get really close with the folks and you spend time out there. And then you'd sit with them. And there was part of our job is to really sit with them and listen. And what do you need? And they'd often say, this is a story that came up over and over again. It's like, my parents don't understand me. Like I, I, they just don't understand me. I need my parents to change. And I was like an adult, you know, so I was in my forties and I was like, you're probably not going to change your parents. Like, don't make that your goal. All you can do is be the, your best self and your parents are either going to recognize that or they're not, but you for your own sake need to be your own best self. And I gave that talk many times in one form or another. So let's take this one form of like, like it's not my job to change the attitude of the nuts and bolts camp. Mm-hmm. Of course not. It's my job to do the very best work I can and, and to make it accessible, accessible to the, um, to everyone. Right. So you, if you're, if, if I like, if I, if my research gets a little too insular, it'll leave people, it'll like, it'll 
people won't have a way in. Right? So I guess that's what I'm doing for myself. I'm not trying to change anyone. People don't like that. Like, here, you got to change. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, no. you got to see my point of view. Like they, people like that doesn't fly. Yeah. What I can do is say I can present my information and do my research at the best level I can and and present it in a way that's accessible to to you. And, and I find it interesting. And, and if and maybe you will, too. And I can't go much beyond that to try mm-hmm. to bridge the divide. Well, that's well said. Thank you. And I agree. And I, I think, you know, mom used to, my mother used to say, particularly when I'm talking about guys, if you think you're going to change them, think again, that's not going to happen. You can't change anyone, nor should you want to. So being the best you, as they say, uh, in today's parlance, do you <laughs> just do it well and do you. So that's a good thing. You know, another thing, I, I have so many questions about this. And this is not what we're talking about is not the ultimate thing. I think I don't care what side of this camp you're on, uh, Mike, we want some answers. However, they come. There is the truth that's out there, right? And but they're inextricably linked. How can you extract the aliens from the craft and the craft from the aliens, so to speak, and I use those terms loosely, I don't like either one of them, but you can't. And I think that there's some individuals, let's say, in the on the, I'm going to call it the nuts and bolts camp, that are on the inside, that may also know that. In fact, it was Grant, I think, and I'm trying to remember who he was talking about here. It could have been the gentleman, the former uh, head of Lockheed Skunk Works, that had some intimation about the consciousness experiential aspect and let somebody know at some level sort of talking cryptically that this is this is a key to the big secret so do, in your estimation some of these people that are in these high level intelligence circles in government and military do they do some of them know and are maybe intent on keeping the focus on the more mechanistic so that we don't understand where the, what, what i like to say the real juice is so <laughs> the the um remote viewing program yes from that was the original military remote viewing program. Uh, in SRI. The, yeah, at mm-hmm. SRI, out of SRI. That was, um, I've talked to a couple people involved. Well, I've, I've talked to, um, who was peripherally involved in the early stages of that, which was um, John Alexander, and I mm-hmm. asked him this question. And I also, well, I, I didn't ask him this straight up question, but I did ask Jim Mars. And Jacques Vallée has spoken about this. They, Jim Mars and Jacques Vallée say straight up that everyone involved in the original military remote viewing program, the remote viewers, every one of them had what we would call UFO contact, direct UFO contact. That's a little more than, you know, that's a bold statement, right? Sure is. Every one of them. And they knew that. And they discussed that openly. I talked with um, John Alexander, who is who is as nuts and bolts as they get, right? He's as pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And I said, I in one of the stories in the books, I, I asked him, for, I needed a comment, so I called him up, which is, I mean, I played the role of journalist in a way. So I contacted him. Now, in one of the stories, in the stories book, this man who was deeply immersed in remote viewing as a, as a hobby was beginning to have these mystical experiences. And he had a beautiful, powerful experience with an owl that plays out. It's a real story, but it plays out as a, in so dreamlike. It plays out like a fairy tale. And I won't go into the story, but, you know, like he was basically, he was deer hunting 
and this everything played out with an owl and the deer and the deer basically offered itself up to him and it's, it's a really beautiful powerful story now i told that story to to um uh john alexander colonel john alexander did you who's, mm-hmm. who's got kind of a dark you know some people in this the love and light people just treat him as i like, know they, yeah i know they treat him as like <laughs> the perception you know, like the, mm-hmm. the reptilian overlord or something <laughs> like that so um so i told him the story and 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 he was like yes we I, the question was does this happen did this happen did you notice this in the remote viewing program and he said yes we recognized this was an after effect People would get immersed in remote viewing, and they would have profound mystical experiences. After, as an after effect, he said. It's versus... somehow, where does the before and after come? Sometimes right. If, the, if everyone involved in the UFO, in the remote viewing program, in those early stages was a UFO abductee, then you, then where does beginning and end? I would argue in, in the this? very yeah. beginning. I mean, let's take Ingo Swan. Speaking of SRI, he was he was very much involved along with Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, as we know, Paul Smith, who I know quite well. Um, and I don't know if you've read Ingo, the late Ingo Swan now, his book, Penetration, which oh, yeah. is amazing, folks, if you have a chance, if you can get your hands on it, it's hard to find now. You can get it as an audiobook on Audible. Ah, well, there you go. I still like the paper version, so, so I can take my copious notes in the margins. <laughs> and this is, this is a book in which you would. Now, I bring that up because, as you know, a big part of this book, Penetration, was his sojourns to uh, remote viewing sojourns to the moon. Um, the the incredibly uh, mysterious relationship he had with this Mr. Help me, what was his name? Axelrod. Axelrod. And the so-called aliens that he was interacting with, one of which was in a grocery store in Los Angeles. I mean, c- come on now. <laughs> this was an integral part of what this book was about. Star, you know, SRI, remote viewer. So there you go. That's just one example. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So this is this is this is the you know that the what's at the core, right? I mean, the UFO contact thing is is so like knotted up in this tapestry of other stuff of yes. this mystical stuff, this psychic stuff, this remote viewing and they stuff, know the it. weird stories of seeing aliens at the grocery store. Yeah, they know it. The the they being the, those on that side of the camp, the nuts and bolts camp. They know at least those that are on the inside that are working in this regard. You know, what what is his name? Kevin Day. What's his name? I shouldn't say it like that. Retired Navy radar specialist, Kevin Day. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the name that's come up. Uh, He's been in the news. Kevin Day, as I said, Navy uh, radar specialist who's been very outspoken about his involvement in witnessing this now famous Tic Tac UFO back in 2004 in San Diego. Okay, okay, yep. Okay. So while on duty... He observed uh, a multitude of objects at extremely high altitude doing inexplicable things. Okay, we know that. We're going to leave the details uh, for now. But here's the, the bottom line. Though I don't think this aspect is discussed as much, he's also reported to have had some strange experiences that accompanied what he'd been witnessing. And as a result, some people have called uh, his psychological state into question. I think he had been diagnosed with PTSD. And he said, no, man, you know, I had an experience here. Here we go again with this very, you know, sort of um, sobering report, the Tic Tac UFO, uh, radar specialist Kevin Day being a key witness, but having experiences going along with it. There you go. I mean, this is this is if you're the UFO investigator, right? So you could go and it's totally prudent and correct to ask the questions. What time of day was it? What day of the week was it? What direction was it traveling? Can you draw a picture of it? Mm -hmm. You know, and then you got to take your UFO investigator hat off. 
and ask the radar operator what was going on in your life before hmm. how has your life changed have you had any psychic experiences how has your spirituality changed have you had an upswing in synchronicity i mean these are the questions i ask and i'm astonished at the answers i get mm-hmm and yet you're not, because you wouldn't be asking the question. You knew you knew what the answer would probably well, be. Well, let me say, I'm a, I used to be astonished. Now, now I sort of expect the answers, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to make sense of what that might mean. Right. But the best I can say is that, you know, you, people who've had close-up UFO sightings, and I'll go one step further. I, we don't have time now to, I could have some wonderful stories, but people who have had powerful owl experiences, mm -hmm. I'll ask the same questions. What was going on in your life? What changed after? How has your spirituality changed? How has your psychic abilities changed? Has there been an upswing in synchronicities? They will answer the questions the same as the UFO experiencer. So will the um, near-death experiencer. Well, now we're getting into what free, as well as Grant Cameron for that matter, but a foundation for research into extraterrestrial and extraordinary experiences uh, led by uh, Ray Hernandez and company. This is the first scientific study, apparently, of the experiencer aspect and what they call the cross-contact uh, uh, modalities, NDEs, shamanic experiences, UFO experiences, abductions, etc., are all inextricably linked in some way. Yes, Ray. Have you interviewed Ray? You must have. I know Ray well. He's been on the show several times. Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> Did he tell the story about like driving in traffic in Miami? Yeah, and that's the, the big, big story, oh, right? Yep, yeah, absolutely. That's... that's how he got the, the contact modalities. Yes, yeah, we know the story well. Yeah, download, yeah. And by the way, folks, we do have that on our YouTube channel. Maybe, maybe I'll put a link in the description so you can go to it. It's a great, great story. Absolutely. And of course, his, not his, but the free organization put out Beyond UFOs is quite the Bible. Uh, and, and that and more. And this is a scientific approach to the experiential part of this big phenomenon. You know, it was the late Stanton Freeman, Friedman, excuse me, who said when he was asked to define ufology, he said, the scientific study of UFOs. But then he went on to say, I think it's probably a lot broader than that. And here's someone who's, you know, he's, and I talked with him and he was very, he took me aside and said, he know the you know here's the owl story that i heard in this case and this was mm. thought to be an owl in this case and so yeah so he he was he's he has heard my talk several times or he did hear my talk several times at these small conferences uh oh actually i think he was at the uh experience or speak conference and he was in the room listening to my talk and he came up when to we were there and, together i don't was it when i don't we were know if i talked that year okay but i think it was the year before i talked uh-huh yeah okay i can't remember i think it was 2015 i talked i can't remember now but um but yeah so he Yes, so he's very, he's he's certainly on the nuts and bolts camp. Absolutely. Though he is absolutely open to the to the consciousness aspect of of what's going on. I think that's you know? brilliant. I'm so sad he's gone. Still hard to get your arms around that he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he said he never, as far as he can, he could recall, had never seen a UFO. I don't know about that. That's not true. That's not true. He did see one in probably... He must have recalled it because eight, eight of the... or so years ago, he probably saw one because he did a little like YouTube video where he said, you know, like I had never saw. He said I never saw one, and this time I saw one. And okay. he described it, and it was a typical little dot in the sky that was making unusual maneuvers. But mm -hmm. he saw a UFO. I think we stopped, started by stopping use the using these shortcuts: UFO, UAP, ET. I can't stand them. 
I mean, what? how can we even call this the field of ufology in the broadest sense? I, I never sense? do. I don't think I ever use the term. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I'm guilty of it. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to find something it. else. <laughs> We're going to come I up. I use gonna... alien and abduction all the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Words can be so misleading. And yet we know broadly what we're talking about. Well, listen, we're winding down. I, I knew this was going to go fast. This can just go on and on, and as it should. And I'm going to say to the journeyers, have this conversation among yourself. What's important to you? Is it the experiential? Is it the mechanistic? Is it a synthesis of both? Are we going to get to the bottom of this? So many questions. So many. <clears throat> Forgive me, I'm going to clear my throat here. I want to end by quoting uh, from... I think you know Miguel Mendonca as well, who wrote the excellent book, We Are the Disclosure, of which I, both I, as well as Stanton Friedman and Jim Mars and uh, everybody, Barbara Lamb, wonderful individuals were uh, interviewed for this book. But he said, in terms of sort of approaching this, this question of, is it this or that? He says one of the big inspirations for uh, his writing this book was, quote, the bigger picture I became aware of during the research for the hybrid project. He also co-authored the book Meet the Hybrids with Barbara Lamb. He, he goes on to say, I learned that the field that many call, quote, ufology is a far richer, more extensive subject than is generally understood. It does not stop with classifying the craft and profiling the various types of beings, but takes us on into a deeper understanding of the nature and structure of reality and of the self. As such, it has no boundaries and is therefore almost impossible to define. So it requires a group effort on a global scale to collect the many pieces of the picture and holistic thinkers to help assemble them, end quote. And I think indeed, I'm going to say indeed, there are many, many pieces to this complex puzzle. And you're integral in helping us put those pieces together, Mike Cleland. I, I appreciate you for that. Tell us, what, tell us what else you got going on, because I know you, we didn't talk about hidden experience, did we? Talk we about not, that a little bit. Yeah. I'll, okay, so on my desk here, I got my third book, um, which is less, it has owls on the cover. The word owl is on the cover. Uh, here, let me just grab it here. I've got a copy of it right here. Oops. Reach and out. mine is on the way and I can't wait. Go check it out, Journeyers. We'll have make sure to have a link to the Amazon where you can get this book. He's going to talk about that. Okay. So it's uh, the title is Hidden Experience, which is the name of my blog. And this is collective, Collected Writings from 10 Years of Blogging from 2009 to 2019. This just got published a month ago. Congrats. A Personal Journey of Owls, Synchronicity, and UFO Contact. And this book... Um, you know what happened is I, I, a couple of, Richard Dolan was said you need to write a memoir. You need to write a first person memoir. He's a big influence on you, isn't he? <laughs> well, Dolan. yeah, and I think I feel like I'm a small influence on him too. So, but um, I'm sure. and I realized like I don't want I can't write a memoir because I was writing it real time in the blog. Like mm -hmm. this blog was, was my. I was like I'm going to say it straight up. I don't hide it in the text at all. I was teetering on the edge of like a nervous breakdown. The mm -hmm. stuff was so challenging to make sense of. And I was journaling and writing on the blog as it was happening. And at the same time, I was having all kinds of overt paranormal experiences. Some of them certainly play out like direct UFO contact. And I was writing about them. So instead of writing a memoir where I would have said, now that I look back 10 years, I'll tell this story of something that, you know, and instead it was like, if you go to the original manuscript in the blog, it says, this happened last night. Mm. I am freaking out. And a, and a handful of posts begin like that. So I wrote it, or I basically I took the existing blog posts and I had to clean them up a little bit to make them a little more sure. readable for the for the for a book format. But yeah, so it's a real time first person 
set of memories on my own journey on what it meant for me to come to terms with the direct contact experience. I thank you so much on behalf of, I know so many out there that may not be at the point where they can openly talk about their experiences. This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff. And it's, it's revelatory. It can be scary. It can be uh, certainly writing the blog and now the book cathartic. What a journey, man, you are on the higher journey, I got to tell you, and I thank you for it. Well, journeyers, <laughs> if as you can tell, I call my audience the journeyers because they're, they're all on a higher journey as well. But to the journeyers, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you did. I certainly did. And particularly if you know someone that might resonate with some of what you heard us talk about today, I urge you, please, to like and share this content with your circle of friends and family. And of course, if you enjoy the shows here at Higher Journeys, I invite you to subscribe to our channel. We've got brand new shows each and every week. And by the way, I think our friend, Mr. Dolan, will be one of them coming up real soon. So stay tuned for that. And maybe shortly thereafter, you'll come back. Would you? I certainly would. And and I, <laughs> I uh, just heads up, I did drink a really strong cup of coffee right at the beginning of this talk. So <laughs> I, I, I was in full force. There. You were in, I loved it. I, I can't wait to go produce this so I can listen to all the great stuff we talked about. Lots of I'm going to call I like I like to call some of these shows cliffhangers because there's just so much more, so much more to this story. Continued um, great research on on your part with these owls you think we'll ever get an answer to what they are i know that's a loaded question at the end of the show but so the answer is no <laughs> but what we can get is a is a deeper sort of mystical understanding yeah right? i mean that's like saying like will we ever get an answer to what is god right like yeah. no we're never going to get like we're never going to make everyone happy but that's not my job is to give people answers i'm i'm an artist like i want to i want to address this stuff poetically i want to mm. i want to just so the content of my books are story after story after story of sometimes my own experiences oftentimes other people's experiences but um and in reading these stories there you you come to a deeper conclusion you sort mm -hmm. of bypass the logical mind. You leapfrog right across the logical mind, and these stories are imbued with this deeper mystical truth. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Hey, go out and get uh, Mike's three books. I'm going to pick them up right here. I love them. Nice so, covers, yeah, You're going to hurt yourself picking up yeah. all three. Yeah, so. We got we'll the messengers. Kind of pick up all three. Yeah, absolutely. The messengers, Owl's Synchronicity and the UFO Abductee. And then a companion to the messengers is stories from the messengers, accounts of owls, UFOs, and a deeper reality. And I might add, you got some great, uh, some great content on our friends at YouTube. Specifically, I believe it was the U um, Ozark Mountain UFO conference that was a good talk yeah that, that was, was a good talk. talk i'd urge everyone to go over uh and, and watch that it was great stuff well thank you sir you are uh, doing your thing and we appreciate you for it and again i hope you will come back and join us one of these days i certainly will anytime great and thank you journeyers as always we appreciate you for tuning in to higher journeys we'll talk to you real soon take care <laughs>